we end the Sermon on the Mount with this commentary from the people who were there. And obviously Matthew thought it tremendously important that we understand this because it touches on key themes. And it's at the very end of chapter 7. Right, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, it's all well and good that somebody is speaking authoritatively. They are amazed by this, but it's going to be a short-lived phenomenon if he can't back the words up by something that proves he has authority. Lots of cult leaders speak authoritatively, but the things that make them cult leaders is they can't do anything. There's no follow-up. It's just more and more words. Well, Jesus, the Jesus we're going to encounter tonight, (coughs) acts with authority. He demonstrates through a series of miracles his authority and why we need to take his words seriously. Recall, if you will, that that these chapters, chapters 5 through 9 of Matthew, are bookended uh, by identical phrasing that lets us know everything in 5 through 9 is about basically the same broad topic. Right, he says in Matthew 4.27, not 27, what am I writing here? There is no 4.27, so don't look for that one. So he spread, his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Right, Verse 23 is what I was looking for. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. That's the first bookend. The second bookend comes at the end of chapter 9. You'll notice the words are almost the same. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every kind. This bookending was a way that ancient writers would give a clear signal that everything in between the two bookends, these repeated phrases, were about the same subject. So these are all about the kingdom of God, and it contains three elements. The teaching element, which we've spent five weeks talking about, the teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. But then this aspect of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and this this aspect of healing. So we spent five weeks talking about the teaching. We're not going to spend that much time talking about the, the proclaiming and the healing, but we are going to spend all tonight talking about the proclaiming and the healing because it is really important. It's important, of course, because it proves why we should take him seriously, why we need to believe his words But it's also really important because they show us the nature of God's kingdom. They're very encouraging for us because they let us know that when he's out proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom, what does God's kingdom look like? God's kingdom, as we see tonight, looks like healing for the sick, cleansing for the unclean, restoration for the dead, fixing of the broken. That's God's kingdom. That's God's vision for the new creation for the restoration of creation that's going to happen at the end of time. And so it's tremendously valuable and encouraging to us to see these are God's priorities. This is what his kingdom looks like. This is our future. But it is, I think, probably first and foremost to make sure we understand why we need to take this teaching so seriously. Because all that teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is great if he really has that authority. And it's blasphemy if he does not have that authority. Right? This is the difference between people believing you, understanding you, and accepting you as the Son of God, and 
people stoning you to death. Now, they still are going to kill him, right? There's no avoiding that. But many, enough people will come to believe that the world changes. So as we go through these stories, and we're only going to look closely at two of them, uh, there's a whole series of them. I want us to remember, too, that as we read these, and I would encourage you, if you did not get a chance to read chapter 8 and 9 this week, after we, after we depart from here, take some time in the next few days to read chapters 8 and 9, because it's a whole bunch of little stories, but each one really is very, very cool. Each one is an encounter with Jesus in and of itself, because it tells us something about who he is and what he does. But it's important to remember as a background for all of these stories and why there are so many of them and why they tell the specific things that they tell, that the people of Israel were expecting a Messiah. And in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, they were expecting that that Messiah would meet these criteria. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. These are the job requirements, if you will, for a Messiah. If he can't do these things, he's not a Messiah. He's not worth listening to. He doesn't have authority. The verses chapter 8 and 9, all about, well, they're all about a lot of things, but at the bottom, the unifier on them all is Jesus' authority. It is a series of nine stories grouped into three groups of three. Right? It's not Matthew is never random. The gospel is never random. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit doesn't work like that. It's very organized. Three stories, then some stuff about discipleship, teaching on discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. Then three stories, then some stuff about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Then three stories. So three groups of three, Matthew loves groups of three. Most people in that time love groups of three. Three shows up a lot in the Bible. Nine stories all about miracles. You could say there's ten miracles, but one of the stories is kind of open-ended and just says, and then he healed everybody. So it's hard to know exactly the number of miracles here, but it's a lot. And there's this variety of miracles. right? And we know that we, we presume, based on those bookending comments, that this takes place over the course of probably several months, um, that he's going around to all these villages, teaching in all these synagogues, which you can only teach in a synagogue once a, once a week, so probably going on for, for several months. But Matthew is inspired to give us nine of these, and they cover things like curing diseases in person, curing diseases remotely, casting out demons, Healing muteness, healing paralysis, forgiving sins, raising the dead to life, healing blindness, controlling nature. It's a variety of different categories to really give us the idea. Jesus has authority over all of these categories. And if you take each one as an encounter with Jesus, most of them you can then find some, some specific Old Testament, in many cases, references that indicate, hey, this is a thing God does. They draw a clear parallel if you know your Old Testament really well, like Matthew and most of his readers in the first century would have, to say, oh, every one of these is a God thing. There's something that God does. This is remarkable. That's why I say each one of these is an encounter with Jesus in and of itself. And so we have this variety, and I think 
I think the variety is important, not just because it fills out all these things that God has predicted to do, that the Messiah has predicted to do, but, but if you, it, one of the things that's kind of alien to us is first century, if you're a Jew, you, you believe in God, but if you're not a Jew, you believe in a bunch of gods. And each one of those bunch of gods had a little area of responsibility, you know, the god of fire, the god of the sea, the god of the air, the god of this, the god of that. I do not think it is an accident that Jesus makes sure he does miracles that hit each of these different areas of responsibility that if you were a pagan, you would have said, well, that's the work of six or eight different gods, and instead Jesus does them all to make it clear there is one God. So it's always important to remember the variety. It is no accident um, the way these these stories are told. Remember what John tells us. You can fill all the books of the world with the things Jesus did, but they filled four Gospels with them. So it's highly selected based on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As you read these stories, and I'll highlight some as we, as we go through, but as you read them, as you take time to read them, take note of a few things. Take note of the language of authority. There is a, a word or phrase about authority in most of these stories. Authority is the unifier for this section because, and we know this, Matthew gave us the introduction. He helpfully included that comment from the people. He speak, teaches as one who has authority. And then and I'll highlight it in some of our stories tonight, but authority language is in most of these stories. Faith, and we're going to talk about that, but faith is highlighted in almost every single one of these miracles. Almost every miracle requires the people to have faith, show faith in Jesus. Not because he couldn't do a miracle on anybody he wanted to, but we're clearly highlighting faith response, faith in Jesus, showing faith in him first as the proper approach to, to Jesus. And the other thing is it's sort of a caveat on, or an extra little thing on authority. Note, there's at least three different places in the course of these nine stories where, where very specific names are applied to Jesus, one by himself, two by others that are names of authority, names of power. So we'll highlight those a little as we go through. But, but these are things that as we become better readers of the Gospels, and as we read them over and over and we begin to see, look for these big ideas, we begin to see just how skillful these writers are at weaving these things in. If you go back and start looking for the word authority in Matthew, now that you're cued in that Matthew, one of his big things is authority, you will find authority being referenced almost Every chapter of Matthew, somewhere in there, is highlighting authority. Who has the authority? Who gave you the authority? He has authority. It's over and over again in Matthew, the debate about authority. So we're talking tonight, how does he prove his authority? So questions about that before I dive into the specifics, some of the specific stories. Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight, I'm going to skim seven of them and try and get in detail on two of them. And it's not because I don't like the other seven. They're all great. All right, so it begins in chapter 8, first with cleansing a leper. I'm not going to read the whole story. Uh, for those that we're not going in depth on, I'm not going to read the story. I'm going to pick like a pivotal verse, or the verses I think are sort of most key for understanding the, what's going on here. And for, for me, with this story, first story on the leper, and again, there's tons of good stuff in it. But verses 2 and 3, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, you kneel before somebody with authority, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. 
Now that's an interesting thing, right? If you will, you can make me clean. It's not you can do some trick or you can follow the procedures from the Old Testament on what you do to become clean from leprosy or what you do once you are clean. It's For him, it's just a matter of will. He recognizes that Jesus has this authority that he wills it and makes it so. So he's demonstrating tremendous faith here. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Right? So to me, the thing that strikes there is that he recognizes it's just a matter of Jesus' will to get rid of this disease that has made this person a pariah, right? If you had leprosy in these days, you were not allowed to be mixing in with the regular people. If you were following the rules, you actually had to go around shouting, leper, 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 so that people wouldn't get near you, ever. It was a terribly lonely life. We could talk a lot about the fact that Jesus touches him, and there's a whole message in there. But he understands that it's just this will. That's the authority. That's the power that Jesus has. And then what I want to talk about in more depth tonight, the centurion's servant. This is, I don't know, for some reason this is one of my favorites uh, of the miracle stories throughout the, the Gospels. Uh, I'm not sure why I respond to it so well, but I, I, anyway, I find it really cool. Starting in verse 5, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. That's some serious faith. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Okay, so making it clear, authority is the big idea here. Right? It's tremendous faith. He comes and talks to Jesus. This guy, he's a centurion, so he's, he's some version of a foreigner. Not necessarily a Roman in this era. He may well be like a, a Syrian or something like that who was in the Roman army, but an officer. Technical definition would be 100 men under him, but it's probably more likely 80 out in the sticks like this. But, you know. Fairly big deal. Career military guy. You know, an enlistment in the Roman army was a minimum 20 years. Minimum. In that time, you have no family, whatever. So it's, it's what, you, it's what you, you have. So he cares about this servant. Wants him healed. Comes to Jesus. Jesus says, sure, I'll come heal him, right? And so this guy only knows him as a miracle worker. Come and heal him. And this guy gets it and says, no, no, just I know how authority works. I'm under authority. I have the authority of Caesar. I'm under the authority of Caesar, and I have the authority of Caesar. So to those below him, he is Caesar, right? They disobey him. They disobey Caesar. They get killed. He disobeys the people above him. He's disobeying Caesar. He gets killed. So he gets authority. And he recognizes that Jesus has authority. The very thing that just a few verses before was saying, well, he speaks as one with authority. This foreigner <coughs> comes and says, You've got authority. He recognizes clearly, I think, that it comes from God. So similar kind of relationship between the Caesar through him and recognizes that God's authority flows through Jesus. So that's one of our big ideas. Remember at the very beginning of the, of the series, we said there were certain big ideas in, in Matthew, right? One of the big ideas is authority. 
that's the one I'm choosing to highlight tonight, but I'm going to pick up two others as we go along the way because they are recurring in the verse in these two chapters. And then we get to what I would describe as one of Matthew's two biggest ideas, biggest themes, right? Authority is important. Well, one of the mega themes of the book of Matthew comes out in verses 10 through 12. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Ouch. Right? The Israelites thought they were like superheroes of faith. And he just said this foreign centurion, they hated, they hated Romans, hated them. Right? They hated centurions, hated everything about these Romans. With no one in Israel have I found such faith. There are only two people in all of Matthew that Jesus commends for having good faith. They're both foreigners. They're both Gentiles. He never commends people of Israel for having good faith. He never commends his own disciples for having good faith. But he commends this centurion. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So we come now to Matthew's, one of his two big mega ideas. The people of God have been redefined. They are now defined by faith. Not birthright, not ethnicity, not who your mom or dad is. And the way we see this is he talks about this this meal, reclining at the table with the patriarch, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So what is that referring to? That is referring to something frequently referred to as the Messianic Banquet, right? It is the celebration in heaven. Probably the clearest explanation of it is in Isaiah 25, starting in verse, I think, 9, right? Oh, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. Now, it's not a new idea that foreigners are going to be involved. God said this up front. He said it up front to Abraham. All nations are going to be blessed. He said it all along the way. The people of Israel have gone, la, 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 not listening. <coughs> God's been clear all the way through. This is for all people. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, right? All ethnicities, all people groups, not every person. I'll be clear on that, but all people groups, all ethnicities. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he swallow, will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. But we said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is what Jesus is referring to, this concept of this feast. 
And he is reminding them that it is a feast for all nations. By this time, they pretty much, the, the Israelites pretty much think all the other nations are lost, hopeless. Why would God invite them to dinner? And Jesus says, first, there's going to be all kinds of nations coming to this. And he's directly pulling this from the lesson of the centurion, right? This hated Roman soldier, whatever his ethnicity was. He was not Jewish. And then he goes on and he really shocks the audience and really begins to upset them because he says the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Now, the sons of the kingdom, that's an idiom that means the people of Israel. The nation of Israel. So they've been expecting to be invited to the party because they're direct descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Moses. And they should be in the club. And he says, no, the thing that gets you in the club is the thing that unifies this whole story and puts this story together, which is faith, the faith of the centurion. The faith of people like this, that is what gets you invited to the party. So the way we wind up at God's big party is about our faith response to Jesus, not our religiosity, not our ethnicity, not our lineage, not our financial status. Faith in Jesus. This is a huge idea in the book of Matthew. Right, this is critical for all of us to understand. It's a huge idea in the Bible, obviously, but for Matthew, this is one of his key emphases, key themes, and it's brought out really, really clearly here. And so we see an example here, and it's interesting, we see an example here of the centurion. He gets it. He gets who Jesus is, and he gets his authority at this deep level. And then at the very end of chapter 9, we actually get a hint that, about the people of Israel who don't get it. Because this whole sequence ends in chapter 9, not part of this story, but part of the sequence of stories, and says, but the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. They don't get it. Fundamentally don't get it. So it's important for us and for people we know to make sure that we do get it. Because of things like this. We want to go to that feast. It sounds pretty good. Food's good, the company's great. But the way you get there is that response of faith. So we have a few other stories along the way. Because we want to make sure we get the point. Jesus has the authority to back up the teaching. So chapter 8... I'll skip the, the, the healing of the mother-in-law story. It's always good to heal your mother-in-law. Or in Peter's, in this case, mother-in-law. Then she cooks dinner, so it's a bonus. That's where we get to the miracle that's like a whole bunch of stuff. This is that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits of the word and healed all who were sick. Right, so tons of miracles here. It begins with Peter's mother-in-law, but then it moves on to loads of other people. Then calming the storm. I'm just going to end the end. I love this story. I preached on it from Mark, uh, but I love the story. And the end line here, and the people, mar the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even wins and sea obey him? Critical question here. 
Now, winds and sea, you're bringing together two elements that in most pagan cultures, they're separated, different gods. You have a god of the air and a god of the sea. So this is that unity. Right? There is a, pretty sure there's a psalm that talks about God calming the wind and the sea. Right? To make it clear, this is a God thing. But again, the point here is authority. Right? What sort of man can do this? It's authority. Then we get the demons story, 28 to 32. So it's a long one. Again, these are all good stories, all, all amazing things, good encounters with Jesus. Right? But in verse 29, what did the, the demons say? Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? The demons know exactly who he is. The Jews, the Pharisees, they're lost. They're like, What is the deal here? The demons know right off. And it's important to understand that while demons lie a lot, that's kind of their thing, they don't lie when they're set up here as the witness to who Jesus is. So Mark uses demons a good bit to identify Jesus. Matthew is using demons here to say, this is who Jesus is. Oh, son of God. He's the first person, well, not people, but the demons here, the first encounter where somebody calls him son of God in the course of the gospel, not the last. But they clearly know he is, because the language is, when it says, when he comes to them, the demons beg to him. We think of demons as being scary and, you know, all exorcists and stuff like that. But they begged him. Language of authority. They recognize that they have nothing they can do to fight Jesus. So they just reduce themselves to begging. So that is a total recognition of his authority. But it's another big idea, right? So the other big idea, one of the other big ideas of Jesus, the, uh, of Matthew, rather, sorry, identity. So we get one, O Son of God. I think we might have passed one where Jesus calls himself Son of Man. I'll go ahead and put that up. That's one of the other identities. Son of Man is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. It's the favorite thing Jesus calls himself, Son of Man. Refers to the messianic figure in Daniel chapter 7, most likely. So again, he's pretty well saying who he is. Then we get chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, healing the paralytic. A lot to say there. We're not going to say it because we don't have much time. Yeah. Why in chapter 8, 33, why it says the uh, herdsmen fled to the nearby town telling everybody what happened to the demon-possessed man. Then the entire town came to meet Jesus, but they begged him to go away and leave them alone. (laughs) I think they are scared out of their mind. Right. That's a, it, it's such an odd story. The whole thing is in like the demons like going. He asked to go in the pigs, and then he's like, "Sure, go on in the pigs." And the pigs all run on the cliff. Very strange. Um, I think that ultimately they are just terrified. And we actually see this. Um, these are not the only place where people are scared of Jesus um, because of the power that he exhibits. They they have a, rec- a recognition. And these people are not Jews uh, when he's over here. They wouldn't have heard of pigs if they were Jews. Um, they're they're pagans. And so they recognize at some level there is some kind of power here we can't deal with. 
And I think it freaks them out. Uh, jumping back to the, the calming the storm in, in Mark, when he calms the storm, the it's in the English, but it's less clear. But it actually says that after the storm is done, after they've been fearing for their life, and then he calms the storm, it actually says that they are the disciples are more afraid of him than they were from the storm. Because I think that's the first time they really realized that God was in their boat. And that's a... That, that's really like, when we think of it, yeah, that's really, they had an encounter with Jesus. When they realized the Lord of the universe is standing in their boat, because, you know, for as scared as they were, they were going to die, it actually says, the Greek says, they feared a great fear. Like, it was a, it's an emphatic construct in the original language, how terrified they are. So I think it's the same thing. They're, you know, here he is, these guys, probably demon-possessed for a while. I think, I may even say that in one of the other Gospels. He sends them in the pigs. Their pigs all go running off a cliff and die. So he's kind of bad for business. And it's just utterly, I think, terrifying. <laughs> you know, they just don't know what to do. Gotcha. Meanwhile, the guys are, like, really excited. Like, hey, we're not possessed by demons anymore. This is awesome. But, yeah, I, I have questions about that. Like, why kill the pigs? <laughs> or why let the demons kill the pigs? But it's an odd story. Thank you. The other questions, well, I've sort of been glossing over these real quick. Again, I want you to go back and enjoy these if you haven't, because they are really, really great stories. Um, and just realize the level of power. Each, each of them is seeing this power manifested in a different way, uh, and they react to it in different ways. So the paralytic, um, he heals the paralytic. Great story. Uh, it's like probably... Some version of it. Most people like to preach the Mark one because it involves the roof being destroyed, and that makes the story more fun for sermons. Um, great story. We tend to focus on the healing of the paralytic. That's not what the people the point of the story is about. He'd already healed a paralyzed person. Uh, the servant of the centurion was paralyzed. So it wasn't the first time he healed a paralyzed person. The point of the story was he healed the paralyzed person to prove he had authority to forgive sins, which is something only God can do. If you talk about, if you talk about, you know, if you, there's lots of interesting elements of the story. Preachers can easily get distracted by the interesting elements, right? We're just like anybody else. So if we get distracted, and we start talking about the friends, or we start talking about root construction and things like that. Those are all valid things. The friends did have a lot of faith. They were great friends, right? You want friends like that? That's not the point of the story. Uh, they tore up a house to get him in. That's like a real urgency to get to Jesus. We should be urgent to Jesus. That's true. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is he has the authority to forgive sins, something that only God can do, therefore he's God. That's the point of the story. So then the one that I want to spend a little bit more time on, we use our remaining ten minutes or so here on, oh, five, that clock's running a little behind. I'll just pretend that clock's accurate. It's verses 18 to 25, chapter 9, verses 18 to 25. This is... Two miracles for the price of one story. Right? It's the, the returning a, a little girl to life, the, the daughter of Jairus. We don't see the name in Matthew. Matthew shortens most of his stories. The Jairus name, I think, is in, in maybe Mark, uh, probably Luke as well. But there's a story in the middle here about a woman who's been bleeding for over 12 years. So chapter 9, verses 18 to 25. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in. That would be a 
a synagogue ruler. It was like the person who was kind of the boss of the synagogue. Um, so a respected religious figure. Um, most likely a Pharisee, but we don't know that for sure. Came in and knelt before him, right? Position of respect. Respecting his authority, he kneels down. Here's a guy who's kind of a big deal. He kneels down before God, before Jesus. Kneels before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now that's some serious faith because Jesus hasn't brought anybody back to life at this point. He's done a lot of cool stuff, but he hasn't brought anybody back to life before. There were people who had brought people back to life. Elijah, Elisha had each brought people back to life. So clearly this guy is kind of, this guy's a super prophet. He's in that realm, that sort of top tier, you know, uh, you know, uh, if you do fantasy, I guess he'd be a prophet one. Um, he says, my daughter's just died. Come lay your hand on her, she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Then we take a little interruption. Now think of our Oreo. If you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about the Oreo. I'll explain it in a minute if you weren't. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. Now, this is weird, right, to us. In those days, you were, you were supposed to, I think it may even be in the Old Testament, you were supposed to basically hire professional mourners for your funeral. So you were to get at least, you know, one or two instrumentalists and some women to cry. It was a thing. I think it's still a thing, actually, in the, some cultures, uh, in some Middle Eastern cultures. Like they still do the, the big hoopla over that. So they're there, they're making the commotion, right? This means the, the, we're, we're there to make sure we're clear. The girl's dead. That's why we're getting this emphasis. Make no mistake, she's not taking a nap, she didn't pass out. She's dead, or they wouldn't have paid to bring the mourners in. And he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. When the crowd had been put, aside, put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went through all that district. So two mega, mega miracles, right? He heals the woman, and he raises the little girl from the dead. Now again, just the fact that he raises this girl from the dead puts him in the super elite of prophets, as far as authority goes. Again, I think Elijah and Elisha might be the only two I can think of from the Old Testament. doesn't mean there weren't others, but those are the two that I can remember from the Old Testament. Um, there's some others in the New Testament who raise people from the dead. Um, Paul raises somebody from the dead after he bores into death with a long sermon. Um, falls out a window. Also an odd story, but it's true. Then this woman gets healed by touching his garment. And, it's, and the point, of course, is faith, right? She had tremendous faith. She, she does this thing. She goes to this crowd, this crowd that would want nothing to do with her because she is unclean. A woman who is bleeding is unclean. You touch her, you're unclean for a day. She is very, she's been a, an outcast for 12 years. She sees Jesus as the solution to her problem. She, she fights through this crowd to touch him. She's healed. But it's interrupting the dead daughter story. Right, and this is a, a classic technique for writers in that time to let us know that these two stories are related. 
They're about the same general topic. So sometimes when we see one of these, I called them the Oreo the other day because you got, you know, the dead daughter, the dead daughter, and then you got the bleeding woman. Mark uses these a lot. Matthew has several as well. The proper term is intercalation. Oreo is easier to say. Uh, but it means they're related. So you need to think. When you encounter one of these, you've got to think, well, what's the connection here? And I've had to think about this a lot, right? And, and obviously there's a connection where they're both healed by, by faith. There's a connection of Jesus' power. But I don't. all these stories are about faith. All these stories are about Jesus' power. So what is it that makes Mark feel he has to tell this story in a way where he doesn't just say, here's a story about the dead girl, and while he was going there, he encountered this bleeding woman, which would be how we would write the story, right? Even if they happen, even though they happen at the same time, we would, we would write them as two separate stories. To me, I think the issue is about cleanness and uncleanness, because there's another message going on about Jesus, not just about faith, not just about power, but it gets to the question of identity. Because both of these people, the little girl who's dead and the woman who's bleeding, are people who, if you touched them, you would become unclean. If you touch a woman who is bleeding, you're unclean for the rest of the day, according to Leviticus 15, 26, and 27. If you touch a dead body, you are unclean for seven days, according to Numbers 19:11. Can't go to the temple, can't hang out with you know normal people, things like that. So what we have interspersed here are two stories where Jesus should have become unclean if he were like a normal person. And yet instead, what we see in both stories is the reverse. His cleanness extends out to them instead of their uncleanness contaminating him. Uncleanness is normally like a virus. It spreads. Cleanness in the Old Testament is not something that spreads. Cleanness does not spread except from God. So I won't read the passages in detail, but Exodus 29, 37, the altar of God makes anything that touches it holy. Ezekiel 36, 25, and 27, which I will go ahead and read because I want that's the one I want us to kind of remember as we walk away from here. 36, 25 to 27. And I know we're running short on time. This is God speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a, a, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Only God can spread cleanness. God has the power where cleanness flows out instead of uncleanness flowing in. And I think these stories are demonstrating, and the reason that they're intercalated is to demonstrate that Jesus is God. Now, there are tons of other proofs of that throughout the Gospels, but I think that's his message, that instead of uncleanness flowing in the way it was supposed to, instead cleanness flows out. New life flows out. A new heart, literally for this girl who's dead, flows out. Cleanness for this woman who's been cursed with bleeding for 12 years goes out. So this is God working. This is Jesus who is God. He makes the clean unclean. He makes the dead alive. He makes the broken fixed. He is the fulfillment of these passages from Ezekiel 
And what I want us to remember from this are two things, right? To remember from these stories that there is no uncleanness that Jesus cannot clean. That Jesus cannot make right. And there is no uncleanness in the life of someone we encounter that Jesus cannot fix. So not only is there no uncleanness in our life that Jesus can't fix, but anyone we encounter, there is no uncleanness that Jesus cannot fix. Through that faith response we talked about with the centurion. And so we should never give up on people, even if they look like they deserve it, even after the first or the second or the tenth. Don't give up, because Jesus can clean and restore anyone who responds in faith. So we pray, and then we can do any questions you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power you have displayed through your Son, Jesus. We thank you for the amazing authority that he has to back up his words with with amazing works for showing your kingdom and all its glory and what it's going to be like. We thank you most of all that there is no place so dark that Jesus cannot reach. So Lord, we pray that we would be faithful in sharing him and taking his light out into the farthest corners of this world and the farthest corners of this community to share that light with those who need it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So feel free to ask questions, but if you've got to go, I certainly know you've got to go.